Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor Podcast, brought to you by The Herald. In today's episode... So it was like an extreme example of a bitter ex-employee who was, you know, exacting his revenge. This is more optical than it is mathematical, and I do think it will look good for the SNP to have a, a, a little bit of greenery on the plate. And I know I'm right, because Ross is getting really shifty in the seat now. You can see it in his body language. <laughs> Something's gone really, really badly wrong if in Scotland we had been on this continuous march towards progress on these issues. And in the last few years, we have absolutely gone backwards. Hello then, welcome to this week's edition of the Brian Taylor Herald podcast. Quite a week, quite a week. Now, we'll talk in a moment about the First Minister's statement of priorities for her new government, about a possible cooperation deal with the Greens, a lot to discuss there. But first of all, that remarkable, quite remarkable evidence given by Dominic Cummings to MPs, the Prime Minister's former advisor, of course, my Herald colleague, Alistair Grant here. Alistair, just bring us up to date briefly with the, the, the details. And of course, there was a kind of response statement today from Matt Hancock, the, the, the Health Secretary in the UK government, wasn't there? Yeah, so I suppose like the word extraordinary is overused sometimes in our current political climate. But this was really extraordinary. You know, seven hours of evidence from Dominic Cummings. Uh, to MPs. I think the, probably the gist of it, the kind of key quotes was that uh, Boris Johnson is unfit to be Prime Minister uh, and that tens of thousands of people had died unnecessarily. Uh, but there's also some kind of surreal moments. He kept referencing Independence Day. Um, he suggested that Boris Johnson had suggested that the chief medical officer inject him with coronavirus live on TV to kind of show the public that there was nothing to fear. He kind of made comments about the Prime Minister and others going on holiday during critical moments in February last year. Uh, and crucially as well, he repeatedly attacked Matt Hancock, the UK Health Secretary, um, essentially accusing him of being a serial liar and saying he should have been fired on 15 or 20 different occasions for different things he'd done. Um, And then today in the Commons, we had a a statement from Matt Hancock to MPs, which he essentially said that he'd been straight with the public, uh, straight with people, uh, and that the allegations from Dominic Cummings were unsubstantiated and not true. Um, and we've also had Downing Street pointing to public inquiry that's obviously coming up in the future and saying that your know, questions will be answered then. The, the, the speculation is whether that will be a, a pan-UK public inquiry or, or whether it's there's a, a separate Scottish inquiry. Indeed, Alistair, stick on in there. I'd like to welcome my panel for this week, the SNP MSP Rona Mackay, the Green MSP Ross Greer, Kezia Dugdale, the former Labour. Scottish Labour leader who now heads the John Smith Centre, and Andy McKeever, a director of Message Matters and a former Conservative advisor. Welcome to you all. Rora, first of all, on the, the, those uh, incredible evidence from, from Dominic Cummings, does it really get to the, the heart of the matter? Does it get to the Prime Minister, or can it just be dismissed, dismissed as the, you know, the ravings of a guy who quit? Well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It was incredible. Um, it, it was really extraordinary to hear a special advisor, a civil servant, whatever his title was, you know, sort of trying to bring down the government that he he worked for. Um, and it really was... He's, all, he's, it always was got, he's always got a sort of an anarchic tendency, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, it, 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 was, it was just... It was like the, an extreme example of a bitter ex-employee who was, you know, exacting his revenge. But I couldn't help thinking, you know, um, why, why is he being sort of given airtime to do this, you know, this must be the first time something like that's ever happened. Yeah. Um, you know, what has he, what is so special about him that he was able to do that? What he was saying, um, I would guess, isn't a huge surprise to a lot of people in Scotland, you know, because 
we kind of knew that they were in, in, in meltdown at times and um, the disarray. He, he, had, he, had he, had he had a go at Nicola Sturgeon as well. He said she came yeah. to the UK meetings and then he, she came out and briefed the media in her, her, yeah, her response. Yeah, I mean, I, you know. I just don't think that will wash because, yeah. you know, I mean, why would you follow a, you know, a, a, a government that's in such disarray and utter chaos anyway? Um, so I just I just found that it was like a parallel universe. It was just weird. Thanks, Andy McEver. Andy, what, what did you make of it? Oh, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, for a, a, a sort of political junkie like me, it was just pretty compelling viewing. I think, though, if you look at Dominic Cummings' history, a lot of it is not surprising. I think you have to bring this back to the fact that Dominic Cummings is not a member of the Tory party, and I don't think ever has been a member of the Tory party. And that is both his great quality and his great risk. The fact that he wasn't a member of the Tory party means that he, in his ideas about changing government and the fact that government was basically hopeless and couldn't get anything done is the reason he wanted to be in there in the first place. But he, 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 but almost, course, thinks that about, he almost thinks that about all government, doesn't he? It's, it's kind of yeah, a, pretty much, a, a, yeah, a distrust of, of, of government structures. And particularly of a civil service, which he thinks yeah. is you know, archaic and basically hopeless. Um, but of course, when it goes wrong, he has no loyalty. And that's the difference between an advisor like Dominic Cummings and somebody who has been in the party before. So that's why, that is why, essentially, that's why this is so unusual. Mm -hmm. um, usually, when advisors leave their post, they're still a member of the party. They still have that latent loyalty uh -huh. to the party that put them in their position. Dominic Cummings doesn't have any of that. He's just his own person. He just answers questions. Um, mm -hmm. He just says what he thinks. Uh, and, he, and that's why you get this sort of situation. Now, I think that I actually found it quite a raw testimony yesterday, to be honest. And I, I think he'll have found more friends than he lost yesterday, okay. actually, would be my view. There's inevitably a little bit of rewriting of history in these things. Anybody who's in that position will obviously try to portray themselves in the best light possible. I yeah. suppose the only thing I would say, uh, contrary to that, is that he, he portrayed chaos and, and effectively uselessness at the heart of government. And he's probably correct. But contextually, I suspect that sort of chaos probably existed in every single government all over the world at that point in time, <laughs> in, in, including the Scottish government. Yeah, I, I, I cut Nicola Sturgeon a lot of slack. I cut Boris Johnson a lot of slack because they were dealing with probably the biggest thing that any peacetime leader will ever have to deal with. And it was really difficult and it was really hard. I think I probably Thanks. Other guests, actually, again, Kez yeah. Dugdale and Ross Greer. What, what, just what do you make of it? What, what, what's your take? Kez, first of all. It's political theatre, isn't it? And it's the story of two men and only one of them can be right. And I kind of feel a little bit for the newspaper editors who had to take a month's worth of story and work out what to put on the front page. And, and most of them went for what was perhaps the most harrowing line, which was that thousands of people died that didn't need to die. Yeah. That's really where a public inquiry needs to be focused on. So That's yesterday was political theory. Yeah. Yeah. An inquiry will get to the root of who did what, with what consequence, and what can we learn from it. So, yesterday was kind of flash in the pan. The serious business of a public inquiry is how we. Do you think, is there, do you think, is there are questions to be answered in Scotland as well? Do you think that requires a distinctive Scottish inquiry, or are the questions pan UK? Because you know the issue of care homes happened in England as well. The the the, the issue of transfers happened in England as well. I, I don't have a view on that because I think. Something like the care homes issue is something that needs to be explored both, both in Scotland and across the UK. Yeah. But then there are more complicated issues, aren't there? Does the inquiry cover things like how business support operated? Now, what 
what would have worked UK-wide might be very different from what Scotland needed, and therefore you might need two different processes to get to the bottom of what was effective or not. So I'm not, I'm not sure uh, about that yet. What I do know is an independent judge-led inquiry, which will cost millions and take years, much to our frustrations, is actually what we need, and we just have to accept that. Take minutes and waste years, as is, as is usually said about these things. Ross Greer. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, your gut reaction is someone who's really involved in politics is that this was spectacular theatre. But like Kez said, we're, we're talking about a situation where not only thousands, tens of thousands of people die, but the, the key point made yesterday was that thousands of people died unnecessarily, which made the whole thing feel unseemly. Like, I, I felt uncomfortable about the fact that it was political theatre because it was about political theatre, about the worst thing that's happened in this country since the war. One of the other frustrations I've got about the the effect that this has on Scottish politics is we've always had a problem, certainly throughout devolution, of the bar for success in Scotland being set incredibly low because the bar is better than England in a lot of ways. The bar is, was our public policy not good, but were the outcomes just better than what the UK government was doing? And and We're we're rubbish, but at least we're better than England. You're saying this is... Yeah, and... That that is the case with the pandemic in that yes, the if you, you look at it in raw numbers, which again is uncomfortable, but the, the fatality rate in Scotland was lower than in England. It was still terrible by international standards though. And so much of the debate here focuses on the fact that, well, at least it's more dignified than down south. There's more compassion present. And that, that's the thing is do, clearly, do, you, do you think Ross briefly, do you think it has been better? The, the pandemic has been better handled north of the border? I think it's been better handled, but not well handled. And that, that's what we need to, to look into. Clearly it's been better handled and, and the outcomes reflect that. Fewer people per head of population died. I, I think it's I think it's been better handled. I mean there are issues and, and certainly it's not been perfectly handled, but I'm I'm not sure how that could ever be the case with, with something like this. Um I mean obviously communication was much better with the First Minister's daily briefings. Um and we, you know, were much more transparent in that sense. But yeah, there were mistakes and and the government have admitted I mean, to Jean, them. Gene Freeman said explicitly mistakes with the transfer of patients into care homes yeah. and the first minister confirmed. Yeah, but that's that, that can't be denied, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kes, what do you make of of what, Brian? Of the of the the, the situation in Scotland, how, how how difficult it was by comparison with with south of the border. I think it's generally accepted that the, the communication of the handling of the pandemic was superior in Scotland because Nicola Sturgeon was out there fronting it every single day, answering all the questions. And there were periods of time in the past year where, where Boris Johnson was, wasn't was seen and ministers weren't, weren't seen. I don't think you can draw uh, that many more conclusions than that because sometimes we took the same decisions, we just took them a few weeks later. Sometimes we preempted things just before the UK government did. I, I don't think there's any common thread running through that other than the communication was just markedly better in Scotland. Andy, what's, what's your take on the issue of what, what, what impact this, this evidence from, from Dominic Cummings has? Does it, does it bring down the government? Does it bring down the Prime Minister? Does it bring down the Health Secretary? Or is it just theatre that, that, that is vaguely, vaguely forgotten over a period of months? I think actually, perversely, I think it helps the Health Secretary because uh-huh. if Boris Johnson fires Matt Hancock, he's implicitly saying that what Dominic Cummings said was correct. Ah. And obviously Boris Johnson can't say what Dominic Cummings said was correct. So I actually think it strengthens Matt Hancock, interestingly. The effect on Boris Johnson is a question more about Boris Johnson than about what happened. Because, you know, as we know from many, many years, writing off Boris Johnson and saying that his political career is over is not a very smart thing to do. He is a survivor. 
he just comes back. He's a sort of Bill Clinton-style comeback kid. He just comes back and back and back and back, and you right. think he's finished, and then he's not. So, uh, you know, I think the way the polls look at the moment, um, he is in the short term secure. But the Tory party, the MSPs and the Tory party, have a pretty good history of getting rid of people they think are going to lose them elections. Um, mm. And if he ends up in a position where they think that might happen, then it might be a different story. But I, th- I have to say, at the moment, I think Boris Johnson's absolutely safe as houses. Let's, thanks for that. A remarkable comment on a, a remarkable um, set of events. Let, let's turn to the, the, the statement in, in Holyrood, the Scottish Parliament, by the First Minister. It's not the full programme for government. We'll get that in the autumn. It's setting out her priorities for the period ahead. It was a very lengthy list, a very detailed list of priorities in health and education and all the other things. Let, let's bring in Alistair. Alistair, r- remind us of that. There was that, and then, and then she sprung this, this business of a possible um, pact with or, or cooperation deal with the Greens. Bring us up to speed on those, if you would, please. Yeah, so Nicola Sturgeon, basically in Hollywood, revealed that talks were underway about what she called a formal cooperation agreement with the Greens, uh, which she said could lead to Green MSPs becoming ministers in the Scottish Government. Uh, I, I think this is kind of interesting. It's, there was a lot of talk about this um, previously, uh, but there are also, although the Greens and the SNP obviously agree on independence, there are major differences between them as well. Yeah. Um, and I think if you look at stuff like North Sea Oil, the Greens want to basically phase out North Sea Oil, but in the kind of shorter term, an immediate end to oil exploration. Um, you've got kind of green policies on taxation. They want taxes on the, on the wealthy, a millionaire's tax. On issues like road projects and infrastructure, I think there's differences between the SNP and the Greens. And I think particularly I'd be interested in what Ross says about this. I mean, I would have thought the Greens, if they're going into a kind of agreement with the SNP, would want some kind of input into a white paper uh, on independence if, if one's going to be produced in the coming years. Um, so, and again, I think that their, their kind of vision of what independence might be would be very different from the, from the SNPs. Okay, lots to talk about. I'll encourage you all just to pile in when you think you've got suggestions to make, but I, Ross Greer was name-checked there, so let's, let's bring in Ross right away. What about that point? Do, do you see there being a cooperation agreement, first of all, with the the SNP, with the SNP and with the Scottish Government. Do you see that happening? Well, both sides, we've already had talks about talks and the, the purpose of the informal talks that, that we've already had were about trying to figure out whether we thought this was likely because if, if it wasn't likely, if, if no potential agreement was likely, we wouldn't have entered the phase that we're in now, which are actual formal talks about a political agreement. So we, we both agree that there is absolutely the scope for this. It will require both parties to move outside our comfort zone. But we think this is what the public expect of us right now. So we, we're genuinely optimistic that we can come to a joint agreement on at least a couple of really key areas related to our economic recovery and tackling the climate emergency uh, that would present a, a, a pretty a pretty bold programme for government that both parties could sign up to. On, 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 the, on the climate emergency, I'll bring in the others in just one second. On the climate emergency, you, you previously, I think it was late 2019, accused Nicola Sturgeon of tinkering around the edges of climate action while the world is literally on fire. You implied that the SNP were, were guilty of hypocrisy on the question because they wanted to, to tackle climate change and yet they were allowing oil exploitation to, to, go, to go ahead. It doesn't sound like you're the best of chums on, on at least that issue, and that's an issue you've just mentioned. Absolutely, and that's one of the most obvious areas in which the SNP will need to move out of their comfort zone uh, to, to reach something that we would consider to be acceptable. But the signs that we've seen more recently from them are that they are 
willing to do that. Now, we've not discussed any specifics about this. I can't talk to you about red lines or policies that we've individually explored already. Um, But no, everything that we've said previously, everything I've personally said about not just the SNP, when I've talked about hypocrisy around climate, it's about every other party in the Scottish Parliament trying to have it both ways, vote for world-leading targets and want maximum North Sea oil and gas extraction. That's the hypocrisy that needs to end. And I think it would be all. But you did accuse Nicola Sturgeon of tinkering around the edges while the world is literally on fire. That was aimed directly at her. Yeah, and and I'd stand by comments that that I've made because it was true. And the climate is the area in which we will need the SNP to move quite significantly from what their record has been so far. We wouldn't have got to this stage, though, if we thought there was no chance of them doing that. The early indications are they are willing to move. Thanks, Ross. Let's bring in the others. Bring in Rora, then Kez, then Andy. Rona, please. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I mean, I agree. I mean, we, we are separate parties. There's, there's, there's nothing uh, else to be said on that. Um, but I mean, I was genuinely delighted at the first minister's announcement yesterday. I think this is, um, this is the start. Hopefully, if the talks go well, of us doing politics differently, there seems to be an appetite for that, and I think this is our chance to do it. Um, and so, I, I, I think you know, working together in all areas is actually. Um, it's, it's good. It's good for both parties, um, and it's it's true to the spirit of our parliament. I mean, is, the first minister held out an olive branch to the other parties, to to the to the um, the opposition parties, and um, you know it was quite interesting to see the the Tories mumbling and grumbling um, and looking glum. Labour looked a bit stunned, to be quite honest. And I couldn't see the I couldn't couldn't see the Lib Dems because there's so few of them. So I mean, I I, I really, I really was. That's not nice. That was was a bit cruel. I know. This is meant to be the consensual, (laughs) modern thinking Parliament. You know, it'd be nasty about Willie Rennie. He gets enough of that from Alec Goldhampton. Yeah, that's that's not good. But but genuinely, I mean, obviously, the elephant in the room is going to be the constitution for the for the the other parties, and you know, that that really is for them to deal with because. The election um, returned a, a majority of pro-independence politicians, and they really have to they, they live with that and 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 you know come to their own conclusions on that. But no, yeah. I'm absolutely delighted, and I think it'll be good. I think it'll be good for politics. Yeah. Then Andy, so Brian, I was baffled by this. I just didn't get it. Why on earth <laughs> would the SNP want to deal with the Greens? Why would they need to? Why would the Greens sign up for that? Whenever you see smaller parties in cooperation agreements get a kicking at the next election, didn't make sense to me. So I thought, well, if this is inspired by New Zealand, let's look what actually happens in New Zealand so I went away and had a proper look at it and I know it quite well and I phoned a friend who happens to be a Labour MP in New Zealand as well to get the full scoop so now I understand it I get it right this is about moving away from the Greens influence only being at budget time because what a cooperation agreement would do if it follows the New Zealand example is say that the Greens cannot vote against the budget they don't have to vote for it but they don't have to vote, they cannot vote against it. Ah. And abstaining is enough for a budget to pass. Now, the advantage for the Greens is, indeed, the advantage for the Greens is they can have more than one moment in a political year, and they can also spread that influence across a couple of directorates or policy areas that they choose to work on. And I know I'm right, because Ross is getting really shifty in his seat now. You can see it in his body language. <laughs> I thought he was so, nodding his head, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he did, he nodded. I saw, I saw the nod. Was that a shifty nod there? Carry on, Kez, carry so, on. That, so my second point, I've, I've got three points, and the second, the final two will be much briefer, I promise Good. you. So, <laughs> so the, the second point is about collective responsibility. So people go, well, surely that means the Greens will have to vote for everything. if they they sign up in some part. No. In New Zealand, collective responsibility only applies to the areas where you agree to cooperate And Patrick Harvey made that very clear in his response to Nicola Sturgeon's statement. Your thoughts very briefly. 
Yeah. It's PR. We're ahead of COP. This is great PR. It uh-huh. looks good. Well, it's oh, I think it's more than that. I think it's well, more than that. Is it public relations rather than proportional representation? Well, no, I said, I said hang on, that. hang on, Rona. I said that was one of three aspects ah, of the logic mm-hmm. behind it. I didn't say it was the only one. But I don't yeah. think we can ignore the fact this is going to look very sweet ahead of COP26. Andy McKeever. Andy. I, I, agree with, I agree with lots of bits uh, and disagree with some others. Um, my, I have a view, and I hope Ross doesn't mind me saying, I think the Greens undersold themselves between 2016 and 2021. I think the Greens could have been significantly more influential in the last Parliament than they actually were. He's, and he's not nodding this people... time. He got caught out the last time. <laughs> well, no, I, mean, I think that, you know, I, I, he's, I think, he's sitting I, like somebody in the, in the dock, you know, don't give any response. Andy, carry on, sorry. Well, the, the reality is, right, that at budget time, the SNP felt that the Greens actually made life relatively easy for them at budget time during the last Parliament. Uh, and I think the Greens could have extracted a lot more. So I think that the Greens have done really, really well to get themselves into this position this time, because on the face of it, mathematically, the SNP needed it more last time than they do now. And I've come to a bit of a similar conclusion to Kez's last point, which is that this is more optical than it is mathematical. Um, And I do think it will look good for the SNP to have um, uh, a, a little bit of uh, greenery on the plate, for want of a better term. The Tories gave it a real kicking, didn't they? I mean, I suppose you would expect that, wouldn't you? But they gave it a kicking. They said it would drive the SNP away from a business agenda. It would drive the SNP into an anti-business agenda. And they said the, they said the, the Greens weren't even interested in economic growth at all. I'll bring in Ross Green on that in a minute. But Andy, your, your yeah. take. Yeah, I think we're well beyond the point where um, the Tories and me uh, would be giving the same lines on these oh, things. I'm not, I'm not uh, suggesting that. I'm asking <laughs> you to comment on it. Well, it's, it's what you would expect them to see. I mean, you know, yeah. that's it's a sort of default. It's a default line. I, 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 doesn't, I don't think it matters, to be honest. Awesome, awesome. uh, but I just, I just yeah. finally, yeah, Brian, yeah. I, I, I do think that, um, I, I think the important thing to understand is that there is no way in the world that the SNP are going to give up large parts of their policy agenda because they are significantly different to the green policy agenda on yeah. big, big, big areas, and they simply won't do it. I think it gives Ross and his colleagues, though, an opportunity to filter into some very specific issues, maybe like electric vehicles, for instance, and say, OK, we can actually turn Scotland into something really good here and we can take the credit for it. And they Let's, might do that. Thanks for that, Andy. Let's bring in Ross Gray. Ross. Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing here in terms of the, the motivations for it is is a moral obligation. So the Greens went into the last election asking people to vote like our future depends on it, talking about the fact we've got nine years left before the planet's tipping point. So we feel we have a moral obligation to do whatever we can in that nine-year period, of which this is the only full term of Parliament was going to be, to get as much done as we possibly can. Um, I, mean, I wouldn't entirely disagree with Andy's analysis of last time. We learned a lot from the process of budget negotiations. And I think you saw that in the latter half of the last parliament, where we were securing policies like free bus travel for young people, free school meals, etc. Um, and in the, the first half of the parliament, maybe we, we hadn't quite uh, done done enough there. But we're certainly very proud of, of those achievements. Sticking with transport policies, for example, you've said that there should be money diverted away from road projects to to uh, uh, other public fo- forms of transport. Nicola Sturgeon was asked by Mardo Fraser in, in the, the chamber about, for example, the duelling of the A9, would that be scrapped? And, and she said that was for the birds. Aren't you going to have to give up these sort of policies as well and abandon the, the idea of shifting money away from roads? 
well, both parties will need to move outside their comfort zone, and, and, and we're we're willing to do that, but we're not willing to do that to just sign up to what would be climate wrecking um, policies. The key thing here, though, in, in transport is the difference between what Kez was saying exactly right. Last year, or the last term of Parliament, we had that one opportunity a year to do something, and it was only in an annual budget. If you want to really change policies at transport, you're talking about long-term capital projects, building new railway lines instead of building new roads. You can't do that in one annual budget. What we are trying to do is create the kind of lasting change that you can only do through agreeing a joint programme for a multi-year term of government. That's the difference between this. But Brian, is that not why? Is that not the point, Brian, of this being a more specific cooperation agreement? I mean, the SNP are not going to stop extracting oil. They're not. They're not going to stop building roads. And if it was there for a coalition agreement, it probably simply wouldn't work. And is that not there for the point of honing down in a couple of areas that everybody can agree that they're going to work on and work on those? I don't think it's going to derail the rest of the SNP agenda. They, they don't need that. When it comes to a budget but time... A, but if it's a cooperation agreement, I understand your point about it narrow, narrow. It's still a cooperation agreement. It looks to the world like a sort of form of quasi-coalition. And yet, as you, mm. you, you say, you expect the SNP to go ahead with um, a, a slower slowdown of, of um, exploitation of Aussie oil and go ahead with road development. That's not going to go down very well with, with the Greens or with Green supporters. And but I don't, think it has, I, don't, I don't think it has to, right? Because when it comes to a budget, ultimately, if the Greens decide to vote against a budget, then I think Nicola Sturgeon can take her chances on that and say, well, are you really going to vote this government down? Are you, you really going to push smart, another election I'll, I'll bring in case in a second. You think it's a smart move by the SNP? Um, I actually don't think it's necessary, but I can see why they're doing it. I I wouldn't have done it if I was them. I think it's unnecessary. I don't think they need it. I don't think they need the hassle that could be created by it. So personally, I wouldn't have advised them to do it, but I can understand why they have. Cheers, Dugdale. I was just going to make one final positive point about it, which I think is that it's very transparent and the public will, will see it and understand it. And that's much better than dodgy budget deals being done behind closed yeah. doors that you don't really know until the very last minute and you're, you're questioning mm-hmm. for years after. You've this could got, be good politics in a transparency got, perspective. You've got cooperation immediately there. Both Ross and Rona were nodding. We got a double nod. Rona, Rona you were nodding. Go on. Yeah, I mean, I, I just absolutely agree. I mean, I think, um, you know, there will be compromises have to be made and we are moving out of our comfort zone. But really, we do have to start doing politics differently. I know that's a cliched phrase, but, you know, really, that's what the start of it is. If it works, then I think we could, you know, I think it could be a, a fantastic move. And I think it's, um, I just think it's it's um, an, an optimistic, you know, feel good thing to happen after an election, you know. Can I can I bring in, with Ross, first of all, perhaps, to bring the others in, into one, uh, Nicola Sturgeon was asked when she, she set out her, her, her priorities, and she was, she was asked about bills that, that, you know, didn't survive or were postponed before the previous election, one of which was the gender recognition mm-hmm. bill, the idea that, that trans mm-hmm. uh, individuals can, can declare themselves so without necessarily going through the, the, what they would see as the unnecessary panoply of, of applications and, uh, at the present moment. And that bill was put on hold, uh, along with many other pieces of legislation because of the pandemic crisis. But Nicola Sturgeon confirmed that that and others w- would, would be revisited. Now, Ross, Ross Greer, on, on that one, you have said on that question, and the Greens have said on that question that it's just, despite the concern of, of, of some in the SNP, despite the concern of some, you've said that that bill is, is non-negotiable. You regard it as just being a, simply a, a moral and, and straightforward right. That's going to be a problem, isn't it? Well, there's two grounds on which it should be non-negotiable. One is the 2016 election, there was a hustings where all five 
party leaders, one of whom uh, here, signed up to do this. Um, this was a this was an issue of complete consensus between all five parties in the parliament. So questions need to be asked about how we got from that point of consensus in 2016 to all falling apart during the term of parliament. But the, the reason that the GRA specifically should be uncontroversial is it's a really minor set of changes. This is not the wholesale radical transformative agenda that some of its opponents are trying to make it out to be. We're talking about minor technical changes that will really help and give a bit of dignity to a very small group of people who have to really struggle to just be treated with basic dignity and respect. That's what the, that's what the GRA is. And the fact that it became this symbol of a much wider, almost entirely fictional agenda that some people made up, we should be asking serious questions about how our politics in such a short space of time took such a, a dark turn. And yeah, I'll bring in the other panelists in a second. But Alistair, remind us that there has been disquiet, hasn't there, particularly on uh, on on the SNP benches about uh, the the impact of this legislation? There has there has been controversy and criticism over it, including within the SNP. I think there was a letter last year of a number of uh, SNP MSPs. Um, I think there's some ministers as well. Um, Kate Forbes, for example, were raising concerns about it. Uh, I suppose it's, it's around issues of uh, how it's perceived the changes could affect women-only services, for example, concerns that would change the definition of what it is to be a male or a female by allowing people to self-identify their sex, uh, and concerns around the conflation, what, what people see as the conflation of sex and gender and the impact that might have on other services and data collection, for example. Uh, so it has been an issue of, of controversy, not just in the SNP and in parties across Hollywood. Thanks. Kez, what, what do you make of it? So... I agree entirely with Ross. So what, what Ross said, plus, um, the reason it had to be pulled was in the latter half of the last parliament, it became clear that the majority for it had evaporated. And that wasn't just because of problems within the SNP, that was across the political parties. Yes. So th there were a number of Labour MSPs who um, became very vocal opponents to the reform. I think what's interesting, I haven't studied this closely, but I have an instinct that the new parliament looks more favourable. I don't know if it takes over the magic number yet. I'm not that close to the detail, but that I think we'll know come the legislative programme whether the government are confident of putting this through. New minister in charge of it as well, of course, because Shirley Ann Somerville was previously the cabinet secretary that had responsibility yes. for this. And you're, you're not concerned about the impact on women that, that, that some have raised, as you say, across parties, it caused difficulties for, for, for some in the SNP and Labour and, and elsewhere? Respectfully, because I, I have friends who are vehemently opposed to this, yeah. I, I see no contradiction whatsoever between my feminism and my belief in LGBT rights. Thank you very much indeed. Andy McKeever and then Rona. Andy first. Yeah, I mean, you know, I tend to, try, I mean, I, now that I'm so long out of, out of party politics now, I try to look at this more from a societal point of view than a political point of view. And I think it's one of those really interesting areas that you don't get coming along too often. That's a massive issue in politics right now. But if you go out there in the street and ask people about it, awareness will be unbelievably low. You know, yeah. you go out there and say, what's the Gender Recognition Act? People are going to look at you and say, I don't have a clue what that is. In the very earliest uh, days of the parliament, we'd arrive at Section 28 or, 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 or yeah. 2A, and nobody in the street knew about it until it was brought to their attention. And then you could say exactly. You could say it was in general, exactly. uh, no, but that's, or you that's, could say it was genuine concern, but it did cause a big rub. Oh, no, that's, but that's the point. That's exactly the point I'm going to come on to make, is that at some point, this oh, is going sorry. to transition. This is going to move from yeah. the political arena 
into the social arena. That is what's going to happen. And you're you're right. That, that's exactly the same comparison I was. It didn't making. in it Ireland though, Andy. It didn't yeah. in Ireland. Yeah. It just and, happened and, in Ireland. And Malta, um, Norway, no no yeah. drama at all. Yeah. Well, I, I well well well. Let's see. I mean, with time time, I suppose we'll tell on that. I mean, I think um, it, it is what I suppose for me it is whether the debate can escape the direction that it looks like it's heading to me, where it's being portrayed as a clash of rights. Um, and, you know, how do you solve that clash of rights? I think the question will be whether uh, politicians can avoid that becoming the narrative of this debate out on the street, because I think there's a fairly significant chance that is the direction it might head in. There's a huge danger at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be Sorry, brief. Yeah, but Rora then, then Ross. Yeah, Rora, Rora. yeah, I'll be brief because I, I basically agree with, with everything that's been said. Um, it, it, it wasn't really an issue during the campaign. No, no one spoke to me about it when, when I was canvassing. Um, seems to me it's a bit of a keyboard warrior issue, and I don't know why that you know um, our, our party um, pol- policies on it have changed throughout, throughout the the parliament um, since it came in. As Ross says, it's it's a it's an administrative. It's mainly a, it's a legal administrative change, um, and it's been introduced in other parts of Europe with absolutely no drama at all. Yes. So, and I worry about the amount of misinformation and hype that surrounds it. Yeah, this is a source of huge frustration and heart for a lot of my trans friends because this is, as I've said, it's a relatively minor change. This is preventing us from talking about other really important issues like their inability to access appropriate healthcare. That's what trans people really want to be talking about. But what it's also done, and this is a much, much wider problem that we need to take really seriously, this debate has morphed into something that has uh, legitimised or at least empowered a much wider wave of homophobia and bigotry against all LGBT people. That this has, as as many of us predicted, this has escaped the bounds of just being transphobia into a much wider wave of bigotry, and we see that in the seriously sinister threats that are being made every single day against this country's leading LGBT charities and LGBT individuals. I mean, we're talking about people who just run charities to protect. Vulnerable groups are now having to get alarms fitted in their own homes, regular police surveillance, etc. Something's gone really, really badly wrong if in Scotland we had been on this continuous march towards progress on these issues. And in the last few years, we have absolutely gone backwards. For the first time in the history of devolution, at least, we have gone backwards. And we need to ask ourselves why. Let's spend the last few minutes, we've only got a few minutes more, but let's spend the last few minutes on... And it was raised by, by Douglas Ross. He was talking about the in the in the chamber, he was talking about the the priorities of the government, and he was suggesting that the the, the economy was was falling behind because of you know perhaps understandable need to to tackle the the, the pandemic. He, he thought the balance was being got wrong. What what do you make of that that Rona that that, that argument that the you know well, the, the lockdown is continuing too long, the difficulties are too too the, the constraints are too tight. But that that's been the Tories' mantra throughout, really. To be quite honest, um, and, and and I think they've just taken a position on this. Um, and in my opinion, it's not been helpful. You know, I mean, we've in our manifesto we have outlined ways in which we will regenerate the economy, and um, you know, the, the, the all the the business, um, you know, the business plans going forward will do that. And I, I just think it's the Tories being Tories, if you want me to be honest. Um, and I don't think it's. I don't think it's very helpful. I think um, he knows what what we've committed to in the manifesto, but he still will go down this down this road. So um, yeah, that's all I really really got to say on it. Yes, yes, I did an event recently with the economist Danny Blanchflower, who warned that fifty percent of the businesses that are shut 
and it won't reopen. So I I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy to say this is about whether or not you're in a lockdown will determine um, the survival of these businesses. It's much more about the economic and financial support that will be available to them when furlough ends. And, Mm -hmm. And I would be arguing that actually at the tail end of this, you need to spend way more helping businesses overcome their um, operating costs than you've had to up until this point. In that statement of priorities, and that's what it was, a statement of priorities, is there sufficient focus upon economic growth and and reviving the economy? Or was it upon health spending and education spending and that sort of area? Well, actually, the Institute of Fiscal Studies panned every single political party yes, for not having enough to say about economic yes, growth. Yes, uh, and mm. I think what's really interesting will be what the UK government does um, later this year, whether it does a Biden and goes big on public spending against their sort of ideology more generally, or whether they revert back to the David Cameron austerity of the early um, yeah. kind of 21st century. That will determine how much money Scotland's got and how bold it can be in addressing some of these questions. Andy McKeever, and then Ross Greer. Andy first. Um, I actually, uh, I happen to agree with Douglas Ross on uh, quite a lot of this. I, I've always seen COVID as this mix between the risk of COVID and the risk of lockdown. Yeah. And I think that before we had the vaccinations, it was perfectly clear that the risk of COVID was greater than the risk of lockdown because, you know, you have a very big cohort of vulnerable people who are either older or have underlying health conditions, and the risk was perfectly obvious. We don't need to go into that. There comes a time, though, where so many people have been vaccinated in the at-risk groups that the risk of lockdown actually potentially becomes greater than the risk of COVID because every day that passes is another redundancy, putting people into poverty. We know that poverty cuts lives, cuts uh, life expectancy. Um, it's you know uh, There's a lot of loss of mental health issues. There's a lot of loss that can come from lockdown. And I think that one thing, as I say, I'm not a critic of the government when it comes to COVID. I think it's a very hard job and I think it's generally got the balance right. However, I do think that we're maybe not great at just spotting when that risk of lockdown is actually greater than the risk of COVID. Uh, so the Indian, I have a lot of sympathy. Doesn't the Indian strain add to the concerns, add to the no, worries? Well, Matt Hancock in the comments according... talking for England saying maybe the June 21 liberation is, 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 is not guaranteed. Nicola Sturgeon here saying you need to get the figures and the facts on on. Well, on the, the I mean, impact of that and the transmissibility of that. If you listen to the epidemiologists and you listen to the scientific advisors on this, the answer to that is no, because they said the vaccine is as resistant against okay. uh, the Indian strain as it is against anything else. And although there's a bit more transmissibility, the vaccine is resistant. So I do think that the economy is important because let's remember the economy is what's paying for all the other things that we want in the hospitals and the schools and all of that as well. So uh, there, there, it is central ultimately to the recovery. The economic recovery is central to the social recovery and to everything else uh, that we need. So I do have a lot of sympathy for what um, Douglas Ross was saying on that. Thanks for that. Ross Greer. Andy's right. And obviously there's a point where the lockdown does more harm than it does good by preventing the harms of of the virus. But I think what we've seen in the south side of Glasgow is that we're not at that point yet. We're still at a point where there are areas of really acute risk. Um, And we should be asking questions like why that happened in the first place on the south side of Glasgow. There are still issues with Scotland's testing capacity. There's still issues with the vaccine rollout. There's still issues with a lack of financial support for people who need to self-isolate. But when we talk about getting the economy back, often that's a conversation had by those of us who can sit here on Zoom in our offices. And by getting the economy back, we mean other people, particularly young people who've not yet been vaccinated, go back out into public-facing roles. And we need to think about the fact that it is their health that's being put on the line 
for the sake of the wider economy. On the much bigger question of recovery, though, I think it would be a catastrophic mistake for a whole range of reasons for our recovery to be based around going back to our old economy. Because whether it's because of the climate crisis, the fact that one in four children were in poverty, there's big reasons why we can't go back. In practical terms... You think the reliance on economic growth is misplaced? Well, it depends what you mean by economic growth. The focus on GDP growth is ridiculous because it doesn't focus on what actually makes a difference in people's lives. You know, you, your economy can do incredibly well on GDP score, but if all that wealth is hoarded at the top and you've got gross inequality, most people in your country aren't benefiting from that. But there's structural changes coming to the economy, whether we like it or not. A lot of companies are not going to send their staff back into city centre offices. So that raises a whole range of questions about city centre economies uh, in like uh, retail, catering, etc. But also like simple stuff like cinemas. A lot of big film production companies have delayed their major releases until roughly winter. A lot of cinemas aren't going to be able to survive until winter to wait for those. So do we consider economic rescue packages for uh, sectors like cinemas? Or do we ask a difficult question of the fact that, for example, in that area, the move towards streaming, etc., has so fundamentally changed that sector that trying to keep cinemas going is a dead end. Now, I'm really concerned about the folk who work in the cinemas because they're generally younger people on low wages, zero hours contracts. But these are the big economic questions we need to ask because just trying to reverse everything back to where it was in March 2020 isn't going to work. We shouldn't want to do that, but it's not possible to do that anyway. Well, I would regret the loss of cinema, but I would completely weep at the loss of theatre. Alistair, just in a few seconds, this is the statement of priorities. We've got the, the programme for government in the autumn, don't we? The, the, you know, the really, really kick-starting the, the legislative programme, etc. Yes, yeah, so we've got the, the main programme for government uh, in the autumn, as you say. So that will be actually putting forward the kind of de- more detailed proposals, legislation, all that kind of thing. This was just the government's priorities, essentially. So we saw, we saw obviously, reference to the economy, what we've just been talking about. We saw reference to the NHS recovery plan plans for a national care service, these things that were discussed during the election, and also things, continuations of SNP policy in the last parliamentary term, so stuff like expansion of childcare, closing the school attainment gap, which has been a major kind of ongoing issue for the SNP and a source of a lot of criticism mm-hmm. for the opposition parties. And there are plans to recruit, I think it's 3,500 3, more teachers and classroom assistants, and also the focus on climate, which is obviously where the with the agreement with the Greens proved interesting. Alistair, thank you very much indeed. Many, many thanks to my panel for taking part. It was absolutely tremendous. Nodding heads and all, absolutely superb. And thanks to everyone who's uh, tuned in to listen to this Herald podcast. From me, Brian Taylor, to Luther. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. We're giving you the chance to get exclusive access to even more insight, analysis and opinion with a Herald subscription. Take 20% off an annual rate with the code HERALDNEW2021. This offer is for new subscribers only and is only available with the promotional code. Subscriptions will renew at the standard rate unless cancelled. And sign up to our free evening politics newsletter, Unspun, to get snap analysis from some of our top contributors every day. Head to heraldscotland.com for the details.